Hello, hello, beautiful people, and welcome to The Woman Behind the Desk with Shannon Danielle, a shared space where we're empowering women through transparency, discussing real-life topics and all things behind the scenes. Hey, hey, beautiful people, and welcome back to The Woman Behind the Desk with Shannon Danielle, discussing all things behind the scenes. So today we have Devidra Baysmore Blue. Devidra is a clinical social worker and certified trauma specialist who's worked in the field of behavioral health for 15 years. She's committed her career to helping individuals via child welfare, correctional mental health, psychiatric hospital administration, military services, and private practice. Her diversified experience has allowed her to integrate behavioral health strategies into employee assistance initiatives that help businesses, leaders, and managers create safe and supportive workplaces. Welcome, Devidra. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> yes, I cannot lie. I'm actually excited yet so nervous. And I was like, why am I so nervous? But why? listen, <laughs> this wealth of experience and knowledge and education that you have in the field is just mind-blowing. I feel like I'm in a hot seat, so <laughs> no, please. <laughs> so, and, so since you've been in the field for 15 years, one, what, and you've worked with so many different populations, what would you say um, is your most enjoyable population or, or something that is pivotal that you feel like you've learned from certain populations? I gotta say, I don't think I have a favorite population. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and that's only to say that I don't think I have a favorite population of clientele. I think I have, um, I just have favorite moments. I, you have really good moments with clients and patients, you know, when they have a breakthrough or when you see right. them just doing better or accomplishing their goals, it's like, you know, and, and you never know where you're going to get that with or who you're going to get it with. So that's always pretty cool. But what I think I, population I've learned the most from yeah, was probably um, in correctional settings. Oh, wow. Um, How come? Working with inmates was just, it was excellent. It was just the mm-hmm. most, it was the most diversified experience because you have people who are coming in um, mm-hmm. who really probably shouldn't be incarcerated, have substance abuse um, issues, really should be in some sort of treatment program right Mm -hmm. um and then you have people who come in who have committed murder Mm. and who have personality disorders oh wow and who um but at the same time this is crazy to say but are the loveliest people (laughs) no I believe (laughs) I believe that I believe I think you know being a therapist you can really see behind the things that people have done and you really see the person for who they are especially when you are really connecting with them on a deep level yeah I mean and I, I think when you start to hear people's stories and some of the things that they've been through and then you find out you know the lack of supports that they have mm-hmm. at home mm-hmm. um, and trying to work with them. So I'm, I'm a therapist, you know, but I'm a social worker. And so right. a huge part of, you know, what we do is coordination of care. So beyond providing that clinical service is trying to make sure that you have somewhere safe to go when you mm-hmm. get out of jail, that we help you find a supportive network that, you know, clinically supportive network um, that can help you when you get out of jail. And just the amount of 
inmates who were returning to homes with parents or family members who were very emotionally abusive, mm -hmm. who really didn't have a lot of faith in them. It's It was just a, a very difficult process to really work with people and help them build themselves up and build their confidence and have yeah. goals after they leave prison or jail and only to know that they're going back into a really bad situation um, and you're just hoping it all sticks. Oh, wow. Wow. I can see that that, that being a very life-changing population to work with, because I think sometimes when you think of someone that has been incarcerated, sometimes it's, it's really easy to label them. Mm -hmm. you know what I mean, but <laughs> especially you know, quote unquote, as two black women here on the mic today, I feel like, especially in our- Am I black? No, you know, am I? <laughs> look, am I? Okay, now, look. <laughs> I love that. But just like as African-American women on the mic, especially in our community, I find that it's so easy for people to label some of the, some of black men that have been incarcerated. And there's so much, there's a story behind what even led them to that place. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and the story starts so far in advance from the actual crime that led them to the time that right. they're doing. You know? Right. And exactly. So. so how have you been holding up with with um, being a therapist and having a private practice? Listen, I have to address this because it's the not necessarily the elephant in the room, but we're all going through in the midst of a pandemic. So how is that? <laughs> how is that been? OK. Professionally. The pandemic has been, um, it's been a lot more busy. Mm -hmm. You know, I, mm -hmm. I would say professionally, it's been a lot more busy. More people are reaching out for services. I think um, probably month three of the pandemic, that's when you started seeing a ton of stuff online about like, you know, if you don't come out of this pandemic better, like you ain't never going to be better or you're never going to have that business or you're True. never, you know, mm -hmm. um, you started seeing that messaging happening. I don't know that I totally agree with that because people are just trying to survive right now. Mm -hmm. But I think it also triggered a lot of people to say, you know what, I am at home. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I Listen. do have a lot of time available to me. I do have these things that I wanna work on. And so a right. lot more people have been reaching out for mm -hmm. therapy um, who otherwise maybe would not have, right? Mm -hmm. And at the same time, there's a lot of people reaching out for services who um, have never needed services before. A lot of people getting treatment for depression, anxiety that have never experienced any of those symptoms before. So mm -hmm. from a professional standpoint, it's it's brought in a, a diverse clientele <laughs> <laughs> in terms of history of usage of, of you know therapy treatments. But personally, it has been like a roller coaster. It's like mm -hmm. one minute I love it. Mm -hmm. And the next minute I'm like, oh my God, there's nothing on TV. There's nothing to do. There's nowhere to go. There's no one to see, you know. Um, I mean, I think we all kind of like have these ups and downs where we fall True. into these little, you know, bouts of just depressive moments. And then, you know, something good comes on TV or we drinking too much yeah. or... <laughs> Listen, you are speaking the truth right now. That's the reality of the situation, right? Or eating too much. Now, I was eating a lot of chocolate cake initially. You know what I mean? I, I'm not going to lie to you. Then I said, okay, girl, you need to get a grip. You know what? You need to start working out a little more, doing some meditation, doing some journaling, doing a little something. Because this chocolate cake. So, yes, cake, I'm, wait, I'm, waiting on a, I'm waiting on exercise equipment right now. <laughs> <laughs> right now, I'm waiting on it to be delivered. It's true because I think as clinicians, even when you're hearing your clients talk about their experiences and their stories, it's like you you hit, 
I wouldn't say a wall, but you look in the mirror and you're like, I'm going through the very same thing. Like I'm also isolated, you know? I also, um, maybe things that I used to do to cope, I cannot do those things, whether that's going out to dinner Mm -hmm. or spending time with my friends. Mm -hmm. I can't necessarily do those things. So now what does that mean for me? Because you're serving others. And so you also need to be served in some way as well. Yes, absolutely. So what led you, I'm so curious about this because you've been in the field for 15 years. What led you to want to become a therapist? Um, so it is, okay, true story. Okay. <laughs> Give us the tea. True story. Well, first off, I, um, I, I have a congenital heart defect. So I was born with mm-hmm. a heart defect that resulted in me um, having open heart surgery at 11 days old. Oh, wow. Um, as a child, mm-hmm. I had a desire to be very active. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was a little bit of a tomboy. Uh, and there, there were a lot of physical things that I wanted to do. One of the things that I have never really been able to do, though, is run. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I just physically. Mm-hmm. Um, and my body says, oh, no. And then, you know, I, I would pass out as a kid. Oh, gosh. So mm-hmm. <laughs> there were these physical limitations. I wanted to do gymnastics. I wanted to do ice skating. And I was looking at TV one day and I saw um, a show. Uh, Robin Thicke's father, Alan Thicke, was um, the father on the family show. I remember and that show. he was a therapist in his home mm-hmm. and his clients would come to his house. And I remember watching that show and thinking to myself, and I was a pretty insightful kid. Um, I had all adults around me, so it wasn't, I, was, I didn't spend a lot of time with other children. Okay. Um, I remember looking at the show thinking to myself, if there's, if I can't do anything else, like if I can't be what I want to be when mm-hmm. I grow up, mm-hmm. I could always do this. Like mm-hmm. it won't be taxing on my body. I can mm-hmm. sit and I can help people. Mm-hmm. I can do that all day. And so it went from this kind of backup plan notion as a small child. <laughs> so now your your life purpose, now you're living this experience. And I, and and I I guess I kind of naturally just leaned in that direction as well. You know, I had a grandmother who came from a very rural area. She was like the town social worker. Like yeah. she checked in on all the old ladies and brought them food and helped them clean their houses. And so that was um I really admired that as a kid. So, you know, it just evolved and just building my own skills and just kind of naturally being really empathetic and, and really being observant of the adults around me and, and taking heed to some of the things that they would say and just listen to their lessons. It became this like natural evolution of just personal growth. Um, And then I realized like, girl, you're a social worker. Right. It was, it sounds like it's always been a part of you. You know what I mean? You saw it on the television yeah. show. Your grandma was a social worker of the town. So you saw her <laughs> doing it. Then it just, it just makes sense that you will become yeah. a social worker as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let me say, let me, grandma was an unofficial social worker. Listen, <laughs> girls, grandma, but everybody went to grandma for everything though. I feel like we all have okay. a person in our town that that's the go-to person though, that we yeah. know has all the resources, you know yes. what I mean? They're unofficial, but official. You know what I mean? That's right. <laughs> so like with all of your training, because I know you are, um, you specialize in trauma or you've had certified training in trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, with that, how do you think that shaped your practice in working with some of your clients? 
It's really a preference of mine mm -hmm. um, in doing trauma treatment. <clears throat> I, I think, um, you know, and, and, and in trauma treatment, a lot of times we talk about like big traumas versus little traumas, right? Mm -hmm. Like who am I to tell you what was traumatic to you? Mm -hmm. We can look it up in the dictionary, look at what trauma means and all of that. And, or whether or not a person feels like they were in danger, that their mm -hmm. life was threatened, or that, they, you know, there was some physical harm going to come to them. But at the end of the day, what might have been traumatic? to me just may not be traumatic to you. And so um, I, I find that those moments just neurologically for people really lock in issues of self-esteem, self-doubt. Mm -hmm. um, traumatic incidents have a tendency to create a belief in people's minds about themselves, mm -hmm. not about the situation, not about who did it, not about what happened, but about them as, mm -hmm. as though they are blaming themselves. Um, and so kind of helping people work through that falsity, that lie, yeah. like there's nothing wrong with you. Yeah, um, <laughs> true. But you it, know, it, helping people work through their own victim blaming from traumatic incidents. And I mean, what might be a traumatic incident? I mean, we're talking from your first grade incident of standing up in front of your classroom doing show and tell and wow. freezing, right? And then telling yourself, oh my God, I'm so stupid. I couldn't get my words out. People were pointing and laughing at me. And then growing up and holding on to that belief of like telling yourself, you're so stupid, I'm so stupid. And anytime anyone looks at you to think that they're thinking down on you, that people take these very early experiences that end up being ultimately traumatic over their lifespan because mm -hmm. they've held on to this lie that they're not smart enough to do something. Um, so that when people have their breakthrough from those moments, that mm -hmm. is the most phenomenal thing ever. I mean, and that's a very lighthearted example, mm -hmm. but, you know, working with people who are victims of rape, working with people who have PTSD, whether it be from, you know, community-based incidents mm -hmm. or war-based incidents. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, seeing people kind of be able to just heal themselves. Right, right. You know, is an awesome experience. I feel like you put it so eloquently though when you said they lock it's locked in because I've never heard it quite, you know, worded that way, but that's a beautiful way of saying it because it you almost becomes trapped in that thought process of who you are or this belief system, this perspective that you have over the world and it kind of defines everything that you do at, mm -hmm. after that. Mhm. Mm yeah. It's like you carry it along, you know, that old saying of like, you know, be careful what you say to your children because your words become their voice, yeah. the voice in their head when they grow up. Um, we also, we add to that voice when we have ne negative experiences mm -hmm. or harmful experiences. And and we never add on the positive. We always add on the negative. Right. Now, I, why is that? Do you know why that is? Uh, you know, I feel like... I, have, I mean, I've read that it's kind of like neurologically, like we're predisposed that the negative just, it's more impactful. And so it sticks around longer. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I guess I get that. The happy, happiness is very fleeting. Happiness is a state of mind, you know, but when you feel bad, when you feel down, it is memorable. That is true. When you feel hurt, it is memorable. And it, it just is not as memorable as joy, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is crazy. That certainly brings me to another question um, that I'm so curious to know more about. But before I get to that question, like specifically in your um, 
training. Um, I know with EMDR, I know you're trained in that, which is so exciting. I can't wait to uh, get trained in that. How do you think that specifically <clears throat> helps someone that has experienced trauma? So for those who don't know, EMDR is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Mm. And I have thought about this question because I feel <laughs> like I don't do a great job of explaining it <laughs> um, because it gets, I'm a nerd. Mm -hmm. I'm a nerd. I like <laughs> details of information. And so it gets so into like neuro functioning mm -hmm. that I think people get lost and people get bored. And so mm -hmm. I'm going to give you a really quick, boring little thing about what, why it works. Okay. I'm ready for so, it. EMDR, whether you're doing it with your eyes, mm -hmm. like someone moving and I hate to do the two fingers. This mm -hmm. is not hypnotism. I do not know how to hypnotize people. That is not my skill set. Okay. But when a person is following, right. Mm -hmm. And they're following with their eyes and you don't have to move your head. You just move your eyes. Mm -hmm. This creates a bilateral stimulation in your brain. Mm. So bilateral stimulation in your brain is when the left side of your brain and the right side of your brain are ultimately being stimulated. And essentially they're talking to each other. Mm -hmm. Right. <clears throat> But whatever you're focusing on while you're doing that is where you can create a higher level of executive functioning and communication in your brain. Okay. So some people do EMDR with the eyes and then some people do EMDR through tactile stimulation. And mm -hmm. so tactile stimulation might be tapping, right? Where you would tap on your thighs mm -hmm. and you create a pattern, pattern, you create the rhythm, the pace that is most comfortable to you. Right. Mm -hmm. And you never know how fast or how slow you need to do either of the stimulations um, because everybody's brain is different. Right. But the reason that you are alternating, even with the tapping from right leg to left leg, right leg to left leg, you're alternating to create the bilateral stimulation. It is bilateral physical stimulation, whether it's from eye movement mm -hmm. or from hitting your legs. Mm -hmm. um, and so what we do during that time is. And I'm jumping into EMDR. There's a whole little prep process to it, but I'm jumping into like a full-blown EMDR session. Mm -hmm. When you, the reason it helps people is because it allows you to, it, it's almost like it blocks the noise, the chatter in your head. Mm. It blocks that voice, that mm. I'm stupid voice. So what we'll do is we'll figure out, well, what is that negative cognition? that you say about yourself all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Unless we're going to take the first grade example. I'm okay. stupid. Mm -hmm. I'm mm -hmm. stupid. That is a constant thing that I say to myself over and over again. Mm -hmm. So you take that negative cognition. We find a target memory. Okay. Um, and we can take the me standing in front of the class um, and everyone pointing and laughing and me being like tongue tied and choking and not being able to get my words out and just freezing. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and then we say, picture the worst part of that memory, mm. hold that worst part of that memory with the words. I'm so stupid. I'm stupid. Right. And then when we start the simulations, whether they're eye movements or tapping, we just say, let your mind go. Don't think about that. Just think of whatever comes up next, whatever comes up next, just notice it. Mm -hmm. Right. And you're doing the movements. Mm -hmm. The person mm -hmm. is just doing the eye movements and they're quiet. And you do the sets for maybe like, they maybe do 20 sets of this. And when you stop, they let you know what came up. What happens for people is they start to 
their brain starts to make them notice the things they've been ignoring. Wow. It's like we avoid things. We tell, we shut ourselves down all the time. Our right. brain is constantly trying to heal itself from negative experiences. Right. Mm-hmm. But what we tell our brain is, no, I don't want to think about that. I don't want to talk about that. I'm, nope. I'm not even going to look at that right now. Like we're in our heads all day long blocking negativity so we can stay happy. So we can get our jobs done. So we can take care of our kids. Um, this process there's nothing else you can focus on. There's nothing else we're doing. This is all we're thinking about. And your brain starts to create the narrative for you (laughs) that you need to notice in order to make some connections about the why. And ultimately what I've seen people do is instead of thinking about every situation, when they feel that feeling, that vulnerability of people looking at me Mm -hmm. or have to stand up in front of a room, instead of thinking about it like a six-year-old, like you did in first grade, Now you're thinking about it like a 30 year old, like, well, obviously I've done this. I've done PowerPoint presentations in high school or, Mm. you know, I go to work and I've trained my coworker on how to do something. Your brain will start to bring things to your recollection to prove to you that that's a lie. You are not stupid. You are not incapable. You have a high school diploma or a college degree, or you're raising kids and teaching them and helping them do their homework, or you do your taxes every year. Your brain starts to literally bring up images and words that people have said to you or things that you suppress Mm -hmm. um, because we like to go to the negative. Mm -hmm. So it's... Um, it sounds like a bunch of mumbo jumbo. I didn't believe in it at first. I thought it was absolutely ridiculous. I was like, <laughs> uh, I, but I needed some training credits. I was like, we're going to give it a try and see what it do, baby. But <laughs> <laughs> you were shocked. You were shocked. So, so what happened Like when you were in, when you were in the training, did you see how, like how effective it was? <laughs> when I went to the training, uh-huh. um, the first weekend was a three-day weekend training. We mm-hmm. ended up doing two of those. Mm-hmm. Um, the first Friday was all we reviewed, like, book stuff. And then Saturday, the cohort the cohort of the group of people in the training, we started practicing on each other, uh-huh. right, in small groups. And then Sunday, we practiced a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Everybody went home. Mm-hmm. Someone emails the group the next day and says... One of the things that she was working on was the fact that she has a fear of driving on the highway. Okay. Phobia of driving on the highway. She drove to our training in DC from Pennsylvania, taking back roads only. She would not get on the interstate. It took her forever. Mm-hmm. She said that when she left the training on Sunday, she took the highway. She home. took the highway home. Did she even, was she even consciously aware of the fact that she was taken? Oh, no, the she highway? intentionally did it to test wow. it out because that's what she worked on in her small group on Saturday and Sunday. Okay. Two days of us not knowing what we were doing and practicing <laughs> on each other. And this woman got on the highway. She said in history, she would have panic attacks. She would have to pull over. She's had to call someone to come and get her. That that it was a risk for her mm-hmm. to just jump out. That's what I'm get saying. On the, I'm, I'm, I'm about to get on the interstate and try this thing out. Um, yes. And so it was, and when we got back together and people were telling the story of things, mm-hmm. what we worked on in group mm-hmm. and things that people got over, it was, it was phenomenal. Like I was sold. Wow. I'm sold just by you telling me that That, I'm sold already. I mean, and I can, I can honestly say, um, it gives me chills, which is so corny, but it's like, it's giving me chills. You're not alone. Transformational healing through this process. 
I'm not going to lie to you and say that it's like, oh, we're just going to watch the fingers go and, and my yeah. body is going to be calm and everything's going to be relaxed. That's yeah. not true. People mm-hmm. do trauma treatment and they have full blown, if let's say you were being strangled in an assault mm-hmm. and we're in the middle of EMDR, mm-hmm. you might physically feel like you're being strangled, like gasping for air. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's a, there's a lot that goes into preparing a person for EMDR treatment and then how it, how we do it and the ab reactions or negative reactions that can come up as a result of it, because mm-hmm. it is somatic. It's about your body. It's about where trauma rests in your body, where you mm-hmm. feel it in your body, right? In addition to what happened to you and what you think about yourself. So it's a full body experience and it can be difficult for people, wow. but people absolutely get better. And I don't think that that's something we talk about enough in therapy. It always seems like this long journey of, I guess I'll get there when I get there. No, I have seen people be healed. That is phenomenal. And I, it's so interesting that you preface this by saying that, you know, that it was a lot and, and you indicated that you were a nerd and I must be a nerd because nothing about that was boring for me at all. That was extremely fascinating and phenomenal. Just the fact that because as a clinician, I know, especially when it comes to trauma, some people spend their entire lives being sort of in this defeated position, you know what I mean? Or, or feeling like, the, the victim in some ways and having that yeah. self-criticism. And so for you to say that in three days, you know, that, I mean, obviously this person was uh, being trained and she attended the training, but, but still her primary focus was to get on the highway and she's been having panic attacks. And then three days later she is on the, that's why I asked, was she consciously doing this? Because mm-hmm. it blew my mind. You know, she really took the risk to be able to do something that could have taken her life, you know, if yes. she had a panic attack. Yes. So yes. I don't it's think amazing. that's now that listen, you sold me. I'm sold. I'm definitely going to get, I'm um, going to get that training. So earlier you mentioned um, individuals sort of being in a stuck position, like in your field or uh, with your experience and working it with different populations, what do you feel leaves people in this very stuck position or why they have such difficulty moving forward or, or struggle so much moving forward? Um, I think it varies. I, mm-hmm. There's the, what I see a lot for a lot of people is really mentality. Mm-hmm. It's really mindset mm-hmm. um, that they, they start to believe the lie. Mm-hmm. And they maybe are angry about it. Maybe they're resentful towards other people. Um, and they get comfortable in that. Mm-hmm. And they know that. Mm-hmm. They know themselves in this space. But who am I if I'm actually like not angry? If mm. I'm not sad? Who am I if I don't have anything making me so tired that like I can't get out of bed in the morning? Who am I if I don't have anxiety so bad that like I can't go to work? So if if I don't have any of those things wrong with me now, it's like, there's also this fear of like, mm, now what? one, now I have to show up in a way that I've never shown up before. Can mm. I do that? Right. Do I believe, do I have enough self-esteem and belief in myself to do that? So there's, and then, you know, on the flip side of that, there are people who stay stuck because they're not just stuck mentally. Sometimes they're stuck physically mm. around people and living situations and, you know, financial situations that 
kind of keep them locked into a way of being and a way of living and then unfortunately a way of thinking. Mm-hmm. So I think it really varies from person to person. So one of the things that I'm really sort of curious about um, is substance use or substance abuse. Like does, do you think it, what you're sharing also applies to individuals that are struggling with addiction? Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. I mean, cause you know, I think most people struggling with addiction in particular have experienced some type of trauma. Mm. I agree. Um, That has been my experience. Now, please, there are a lot of people who struggle with addictions because they were having fun and they Mm -hmm. had too much fun and they just got addicted, right? (laughs) There's a lot of people. (laughs) They were like, I just tried it out. We were partying, you know? Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. But my experience is that most people who are seeking to escape Mm. or seeking to numb Mm. have histories that led them to that place. Mm. I know, I know there was a debate, you know, in the past about addiction being a disease or is it a choice? Like, what would you say to that question or that debate? Oh, I mean, I think drug use in the beginning for anybody is a choice Mm. in the beginning. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. In the beginning, (laughs) you know, (laughs) Um, in the beginning, I definitely believe that it is a choice. We all make a decision if we want to smoke that cigarette or smoke that joint or right. smoke that pipe yeah. or sniff that line, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that, you make more choices and you mm-hmm. say, oh, I don't really like this or I can handle it. I'm just going to do it a couple of times, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then eventually, what we know, and this is, I don't understand why this is difficult for people because we believe that drugs, that mm-hmm. substances, when mm-hmm. prescribed, mm-hmm. have the capacity to physically and chemically and even neurologically change us. We all know this and believe this. Right. But somehow when we start talking about an illegal substance, they, people don't think the same thing. <laughs> so, That's true. That's true. You're right. That's- like. So let's just, okay, so let's just say that cocaine is prescribed. Um, <laughs> and mm-hmm. I'm just, you know. I see where you're going here. I see where you're going. It will physically, emotionally, because it will neurologically change you. Mm-hmm. Um, like that, that's what substances, that's what foreign substances do when they enter your body. Mm-hmm. Um, and so whether it's an illegal substance or a prescribed substance, which we all know opiates are prescribed, but um, then they turn into other things, right? Mm-hmm. They get into your body, they change you neurologically, and then something that you would do recreationally, like, oh, I'm just hanging with my friends, you know, I'm going to sniff this line real quick, turns into your body saying, hey, what are we doing? Because I Mm. I need some coke, you know? Okay. And maybe that wasn't where you were with it before. Maybe before it was like, you could take it or leave it. But if everybody was out having fun, you might do a line just to join in. Mm -hmm. Um, And now it's turned into a thing where your body is physiologically affecting you, where you are now physically in pain. If it's alcohol, maybe now mm-hmm. you're having tremors in the shakes, right? Like it, it stops being recreational fun and it starts being, I'm physically ill mm. if I don't do this. And the pleasure sensor in my brain that kept being stroked and like lighting up every time I did this drug mm-hmm. is like, causing me to be super depressed because now I don't mm-hmm. have it anymore. And, and I literally feel like I need this in order to survive. 
physically. So the body becomes physically dependent on it. Exactly. And, and neurologically, you start to think, like, if my body needs it, I, I must need it. Mm, mm. I mean, <laughs> it's true. Even when you it's get true. to the point of saying, like, this is horrible for me. Like, I'm losing my life. I'm losing my kids. I'm losing things that are important to me. And I feel so bad physically when I try to stop using yeah. that it's worth it to lose everything because I can't feel like this because I feel like I'm dying. And so... You know, I mean, we can say it. People, I, that's a that's a dispute. You know, mm-hmm. for the holier than thou rollers that feel like y'all are making this decision. If you were strong enough, you could just quit. Most people stop using drugs without any intervention. So let's not make it seem like everybody that uses drugs needs some level of professional or formal intervention because they don't. Most people stop using without that. But a shit ton of people don't. (laughs) Mm. So do you think that, you know how they say, once an addict, always an addict? Do you feel that it's, uh, I would say, do you subscribe to that as well? Or do you have a different belief system around that? Um, I believe that when we talk about diagnoses in general, we have to remember that we're dealing with people. Mm. We have to remember that we're dealing with individuals. And so... I mean, I know when people think about the field of behavioral health, they view it as like a social thing Mm -hmm. (laughs) or social workers. The word social is literally in it. But my training and going to school, my very first teacher was very clear. You know, you need to always remember that you are a scientist. Um, And you need to approach every one of your clients, every one of your patients like you are a scientist. And so what that says to me is I can read all the journals, I can read all the articles, and there will be trends. There absolutely are trends. We do know that when people have addictions, they are more likely to relapse, that this is a lifetime struggle that many and most of them have. Mm-hmm. Like Absolutely, that data is there. It supports that. I do not disagree with the science. Um, at the same time, I know I work with people. And so what might happen to 70% of the people it's not going to happen to 30% of the people. Mm. And I have to be prepared for that so that I can treat that person in the way that they need to be treated clinically. Right. So that means that the, the person who was addicted to a substance and, you know, for some people, they feel like you can never drink alcohol. Like if you're an addict, you don't do any drugs. You don't drink any alcohol. You don't introduce any foreign substances to your body. Like you just, you're sober, completely mm-hmm. sober. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and other people are like, well, yeah, I mean, I used to be addicted to crack. I don't do crack anymore, I, but I do drink occasionally, you know, and I'm, I don't over drink. I don't misuse it. I'm not having negative consequences as a result of it. Like, um, and I, I need to not, as a practitioner, I need to be prepared to work with that individual and respect the difference in them Wow! from my person who cannot drink because they're going to drink and that's going to lead to them popping a pill and that's going to lead to them ending up with a pipe. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it doesn't matter what the data says. I have to be prepared to treat my patients as individuals. So that sounds like even with you sharing that, you're speaking to having flexibility as a clinician and understand that as a scientist, what might work for one person might not work um, for another. And I think sometimes in our practice, we can be so rigid, really focusing on diagnoses instead of what is going on for this person outside of the diagnoses. 
And I believe in harm reduction, um, mm-hmm. which some people struggle with the notion of harm reduction kind of in its broadest sense is if a person wants to continue using substances, mm-hmm. but they are not experiencing any negative consequences as a result of that, they're not failing to parent, they're not negligent, they're not, you know, they're not harming you know, anyone else or even themselves really through the use beyond what kind of naturally happens when we ingest substances, Mm -hmm. um, that, that has to be okay because that's that person's choice. Mm -hmm. And when they get to the point to where they want to do something different, then we address that. Um, I mean, I think it's, I think, I think it's important to look at substance use as, as, as a whole thing and not like just this one thing that everyone does it and their lives fall, uh, falls apart because mm-hmm. a lot of people's lives fall apart. But there mm-hmm. are a lot of functional addicts um, who go to work every day, who pay their mortgages and their rent and take care of their kids and pay their kids college tuition, um, you know, and, and they need support too for when they get to the point to where they're ready to change. And I they're agree. not going to get to that point <laughs> if all they're hearing is you need to stop, you need to stop, you need to stop. Well, they haven't stopped so far. Like, why do you think this is going to be effective? I agree. I I love that you even mentioned that because I know on the show, I'm pretty transparent about my own personal story. And so for my mom, she was a very high functioning addict. You know, at the time she worked as a nurse and she was an excellent nurse and she did her job and she was a single parent and she took care of us. And, you know, and a lot of people did not know that she was an addict. And I don't think that I knew she was an addict. I always knew something was a little bit off, but at the time I was a child, so I didn't know what was off. You know what I mean? I'm like, mm-hmm. something not right, but I don't really know what's not right. You know? <laughs> like, I don't know what it is. Well, I don't know what's not right. It's <laughs> something not right. But it didn't take until, you know, until I think middle school when my mom began to um, become a little bit more outspoken about it. But I remember there was a recent experience where we tried to do, what is it? An, um, intervention. An intervention. And mm-hmm. my mom was not having it. I remember it. I remember that. So I love the fact that you said that, you know, for even family members, just because you feel a certain way about how that person should be, doesn't mean that that's what that person is. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? And Mm -hmm. my mom is doing well now. She's been clean for many years and she's doing excellent. Actually, today is her birthday. She's doing excellent. And she's been sober for a really long time now, but that would have to be a decision that she made on her own. Mm -hmm. And so I guess my next question would be, what would you say to the family members of addict? Like how addicts, how are they, what would you recommend um, for them when they are closely connected to an addict? That's, you know, it's such a difficult, it's such a difficult thing because I know when family members, when when family members of addicts, first off, they love, their family they do they like they love live breathe and would die for Mm -hmm. their family Mm -hmm. and they want to be there they want to make sure that they're safe they want to make sure that they're supported and in the process of that unfortunately they sometimes end up enabling the addiction or the addictive behaviors Mm. um they end up allowing that person to kind of control the dynamic of the family and the household. And if they're miserable, everybody's miserable. And so they give in to things so that the person, you know, whether that means giving them money, um, 
or ignoring them when they come in high and just mm-hmm. go to their room. You know, that, yeah. that there is this um, kind of agreement mm. of the unspoken rules of, mm. of engagement. Mm. Uh, but it's because so they're true. trying to keep their family member alive. That is so true. And it's a struggle because, as I said before, every person, every individual is different. Mm-hmm. What we know is the criminalization of drugs does not help anyone. Mm-hmm. We know this. It doesn't. Um, and so while, while we may not like that, while the truth of that may be very uncomfortable, and so then it's like, well, what the hell does that mean? Does that mean we just need to make all the drugs legal? I don't know. Nations have done it and mm-hmm. nations have been successful with doing it. I know they do it in um, Canada. It was one particular doctor that did it in Canada. I mean, it's like there are countries who have done it and created programs and social initiatives and put funding into things around that, you know, mm-hmm. outside of just making the drugs legal that um, ultimately ended up decreasing that population. But I give that information for families to say, okay, wait. So if criminalizing the drug is not socially helpful mm-hmm. in nations around the world, <laughs> then maybe we need to look at how we treat it within our family, right? Wow. Yeah. Do we criminalize this individual? Do we make this person feel like a bad person because they are addicted to drugs? Is that something that we exhibit in our behavior, in our speech to them? Is that something that we're emphasizing, right? Or projecting onto them? Because this is the narrative we've all been sold. Drugs are bad. Bad people do drugs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or are we taking the notion of drugs are just a thing that people do? Mm. Some people can handle them. Most people cannot. Mm. So that, oh my gosh, so that I, I love what you're sharing here because I have so many questions that's coming to my mind as you're, as you're, as you're sharing. So what do you recommend for the family? Like how does the family member cope with that? Let's say if well, this family member that's, yeah, like let's say if this family member is very destructive, you know, mm-hmm. it's a destructive family. Like it's a, it's a, like you said, Oftentimes, family members of actors, they love their family, you know? Mm-hmm. So let's say the person is destructive. You know, they are harmful to themselves, harmful to people around them, and they bring a lot of toxicity to the space. Mm-hmm. How do they cope, the family members? The one thing I would tell anybody is that when you're dealing with any situation, the first thing you need to look at is safety. Mm, okay. And the first person's safety that you need to look at are the most vulnerable people in your space. If that's you, if that's your children, if that's an elderly relative that you have living in your home, mm-hmm. you know, whomever that may be, um, or if that is the addict themselves, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Who is the most vulnerable person in terms of safety if mm-hmm. this person is destructive or violent or aggressive, right? And then from a safety perspective, there is a decision that has to be made that goes beyond. This is not about love. This is not about me not Mm. loving you. Right. Okay. Okay. This is about how can I help you if you become so erratic when you are high that you become a physical life threatening danger to Mm. the people in this home. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, I can't do anything for you if you kill me and you your little sister, too. You, you know saying. what I'm saying? Like, this is that. And <laughs> that's, that's how it happens. And that ha- Absolutely. That's, yeah, absolutely. So so there is a there is a real pardon. I don't know what faith people are, but there's a real kind of Jesus um, reality check that you have to have when it comes to the safety component. 
Mm, okay. Is this a person who can safely be maintained in my home? Mm, okay. okay. Is this a person who can safely visit my home? That's a hard question. Right? Because that creates the dynamic of, well, if we're saying that this person can't safely be maintained in the home, well, now it's like, well, what the heck are we going to do? And right. who feels comfortable allowing them to live with them? Is there anyone? Do we put them out of the home? And the, the coping part for families is, is in direct opposition with what works for addicts. Mm. What works for addicts is when they have a shit ton of support, when they have a lot of family engagement, a lot of family involvement, a lot of family support. And support does not mean buying them drugs. Mm-hmm. Support, <laughs> you know, but someone who calls and checks on them and is there to talk to them whenever, you know, when they want to talk and like, like that they have a network of love around them, encouragement, people that are t- still trying to create and help them foster skills and opportunities, right? Mm-hmm. We know that addicts thrive in those circumstances because eventually they love themselves as much as the people love them who've been showing them love. Mm-hmm. Um, Unfortunately, demonstrating that love to them burns people out beyond belief. That's what I'm saying. You know, and so you have to at some point say, what am I willing to risk and what am I willing to pay for the Mm. price and hope of this person's sobriety? Mm. And it is a moment where you're having to choose between yourself and your loved one. What am I willing to risk and what am I willing to pay? That is a huge question. It, it gives me chills just thinking about that because when it's someone that you love, it's almost like you got to choose you and your family, especially like you said, the most vulnerable vulnerable people. Because what I was wondering, as you said that, is, as you were sharing prior to that question, prior to you saying that is how do you protect your young children from the trauma that's attached to the, these experiences? And the reality is if that person is living in the home, you know, are they bringing drugs into your home? Mm -hmm. Are they leaving drugs on top of the washing machine where Mm. small people can get to them or on windowsills or, you know, in arm's reach of our toddler? Right, right. Um, Is this a person who is only doing their drugs outside of the house? Mm -hmm. Never comes to the home really from what you can see high, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they keep that their drug life and drug use kind of away from the home. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and, and for some people it's like, if, if you can maintain that boundary, then it's okay for you to be here. But you, you every person's situation is going to be different and, and they have to really assess the safety of that because the experiences when you say that, how do you keep protect your children from the experience of having an addict? We know that there are certain behaviors that come with addiction, mm-hmm. specifically I, the number of clients that I've worked with who have had alcoholic parents. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you know, parents who are alcoholics become enraged when they drink are physically abusive towards the other, you know, the other caregiver in the home are physically abusive towards the children. Mm-hmm. Um have pulled guns out and shot at the entire family, you know, as they've tried to flee the house and run across the yard to a neighbor. And, you know, like some of the stories and experiences that people have living with addicts, you do have to stop for a moment and say, I love you, but I have all these other people to be responsible for. Right. And so how, 
how do we safely do this, right? Mm -hmm. Do I keep running the risk with you being here or do I run a different risk and, and, and leave and separate myself or ask you to leave? Um, none of which, none of those decisions are easy decisions to make. Mm -mm. That's so powerful though, but a decision has to be made. And it sounds like you, what you're referring to too, and this is boundaries. So like, what are some boundaries that family members can create? Like they have to create physical boundaries or both physical and emotional boundaries or. Oh yeah. Um, you know, and as I, as you were saying that, I thought about something I did not say with regards to the boundaries and safety of people. Okay. One of the things that I found with um, my patients who were incarcerated inmates, mm -hmm. the number of them that started using substances with their parents mm. was, wow. I'm rarely shocked. Let me say that. <laughs> not a lot of things surprised me. Um but I had people who were using heroin with their parents at nine years old. And so when you think about the impact of harm to your children, mm. whether it's a cousin that's living in the household that's using drugs or a sister or a parent, you know, or uncle, you know, what they see, what they get involved in, the potential for them to use in the future, all of those things become factors to think about. So when you say the boundary for some people, that boundary is going to be that person just can't be here. Okay. Physical boundary. You okay. may not be here. Mm -hmm. Like you are an addict. I can't trust you to provide care to the kids. I can't trust you to pick them up sober. I can't trust that you're not going to have drugs in the house or that you're not going to have people in the home with you who are doing drugs, you know, for, or I just don't want to run the risk that you will become so much more heavily involved in this, that your judgment will change. And I won't know when that happens, but my mm. kids will be here. Right. 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 Or my mother will be here. I don't know who you're going to let in the house. I don't know that you're going to come and try to steal something or have, or your friends are going to come because they know you live here and try to rob us mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. because you're living with family. So for some people, it is a very clear boundary of you into it, you into drugs and you can't be here for other people. You know, that boundary is a little bit more loose. Okay. Fast and loose. And it is ever evolving and ever changing. But what I would say is creating boundaries does not come. It does not come without some level of guilt. Mm. So you yeah. cannot expect to have to make these decisions pain-free. That's so true. Period. This is so powerful. Like these are not choices that are going to be made without pain. There will be pain. And the sooner you accept that reality, that it's going to be painful to you and it's going to be painful to the other person. The other person is going to feel like you're turning your back on your family when you say, listen, you can come over and visit, but you got to make sure that we're here. You can't be alone with the kids or it needs to be supervised or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to involve the court system now mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, for if it's a parent, like supervised visitation or if it's a grandparent and their child you know is addicted and now they're caring for their grandkids well now we're going to have to go and file for custody like the boundaries that you put in place with people in your life who are addicts have to be there for safety and protection okay safety physical safety and protection and then secondary to that becomes the emotional safety and protection and what you have to know is when it comes to children you cannot protect children emotionally the way that you feel like you need to be protected emotionally. 
And so if you have an addict in your life and you are caring for their children, it's an excellent idea to have a therapist that you're working with because your judgment and your needs and your experience with this person are sometimes going to supersede what the child may need because it's still their parent. Right. Mm. And you want to protect them and you want to keep them emotionally safe. You don't want them to feel abandoned, but you don't want this person to make promises and keep breaking them. And so to help you through that process, it's always good to have a third party. And there are like Al-Anon groups for families. Like mm-hmm. I hate to even refer to it as Al-Anon because the whole QAnon thing that like, drives me crazy. So I'm reluctant to even say it because I don't. They are not the same things. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but there are support groups for families of addicts families of alcoholics um, and whether it's like layman support groups like that, or whether mm-hmm. you have a professional, um, a clinician that you work with periodically to kind of help you through making some of the choices that you need to make. It's always good to reach out to help, reach out for help. Um, one in trying to make choices, but also in trying to cope with the decisions that you come up with because mm-hmm. it's without its pain. I love that you are, you know, for all of our listeners that you're just saying, you know, expect pain because it's going to be painful. So to walk into it, feeling that you won't experience pain is almost this unrealistic expectation and setting yourself up in some ways. So how do you force an addict to be accountable? Is that possible to force an addict to be accountable for their actions or, um, you know, I hear when I hear that accountability and consequences, I'm like, we all know what consequences are. There's there are none of us living mm-hmm. who don't know what consequences that are. That is true. No, I know, there, I know. Okay. Okay. None <laughs> of us living who do not know about accountability. And so what I say is addicts are always um accountable whether they choose to acknowledge it or not. Mm-hmm. When your life is falling apart, baby, yeah. you are being held accountable. <laughs> Like, like, let's be clear. Um, We don't like the way that they deal with it because they tend to tell a lot of lies and ignore a lot of things and just keep on using, honey. Mm -hmm. But when your life is falling apart, you are literally suffering the consequences of your actions. Yeah. You know, and so you can't you can't force someone to be like, oh, wow. I see that I have ruined so much that I now want to make a different choice. No, like, no. <laughs> or, you know, I see that I shouldn't have come to the party and drank because then I got so drunk that I caused the scene and, and it got in a fight with somebody and then I messed your house up, you know, like, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe you'll get that. You probably won't. <laughs> Most likely not. But some of the bridges that addicts burn in terms of relationships because of their inability to um to 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 genuinely and authentically accept accountability mm-hmm. um and i and i'm reluctant to say that because i think sometimes addicts do genuinely accept accountability even though their pride will not allow them to tell you about it mm-hmm. um most addicts perpetuate their use over time because of many of the things that they've done that they have harmed the people that they love they feel like shit, yeah. you know, um, and they're just trying to numb all of the pain that they have one been through, but that they have caused and created in their loved ones lives. So yeah. I, I think that addicts are oftentimes very accountable to themselves for the things that they do. And, and as the people who are supporting them or are loving them, there will come a time, hopefully in their healing and recovery 
that they will come to you and make amends as one of the steps in the process, right? But that shouldn't be more important to you than their journey to getting there, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So making them be accountable, good luck with that. I, I mean, mm-hmm. I think that I think that they are being accountable um, and living with the the consequences of their actions every single day. Uh, what if they're in a place of denial? You know, if an addict is in a state of denial and they don't think that they have an issue with substance use, what are family members to do or partners of an addict to do in that particular situation? Um, so uh, real quick for our listeners, uh, there is this thing in Nerdville called Nerdville. There's this thing called the trans theoretical model. Mm-hmm. Layman's term, it is the stages of change model, right? Stages of change can be applied to just about anything in terms of change and growth, right? right. Mm-hmm. So if we are going to say, let's just talk about cell phone usage. Okay. Um, my husband for a very long time was in the pre-contemplative stage. <laughs> Pre-contemplative stage. Pre-contemplative stage stage of overuse of cell phone time means Mm pre-contemplative. I'm not contemplating change. I do not think I have a problem. Mm -hmm. I do not think I overuse my cell phone. I don't think I'm on it too much. Um, I think this is just you because you be on Mm -hmm. your phone. You the problem. You're the problem. Overreacting right right now. You're overreacting. So if you have an addict in your life. That sounds real familiar to you. (laughs) You know, pre-contemplative stage, they don't think they have a problem. They think that they are still recreationally using. They Mm -hmm. say, I can quit whenever I want to. Now, maybe there have been some things that have triggered them along the way to say, maybe I can't. But they're not ready to admit that to you, right? Mm -hmm. They're not ready to say, maybe I have a problem. No, they ain't thinking about the fact that they have a problem. You thinking about the fact that they have a problem. In which case, I would say to you, well, now you know they have a problem. And Mm -hmm. nothing that you say is likely going to change where they are. Right, right. Nothing that you say to them is going to make them believe that they have a problem. Mm. That is a place that they have to come to on their own. Mm. Mm. And, you know, and, and there will be some people who like, they're going to say, you know, I, I mean, we can give you the, if you just, if you just Google, like, um, I don't know, if you Google alcohol use disorder criteria, <laughs> they'll, you, you'll find a, a fact sheet somewhere. I'm certain. I think it might be NIH. Mm-hmm. And the fact sheet will give you the list of things to let you know if your alcohol use disorder is mild moderate or severe. And these are the actual diagnostic criteria. And you might look at your person and say, you know, you've missed like two days of work a week because you're so hungover or, you know, you get trashed and then you lose track of time and you don't make it to work. Or, you know, um, because of that, you, you can't pay your bills. All these consequences, you've had negative consequences as a result of your drug or alcohol use, and you're still using. You said you were going to slow down, that you could quit whenever you wanted to, but that was three months ago and you still haven't been able to do it. Like Mm. all these, this list of things, you can show that to them or go through the steps with them and let them see like your use is severe. It is still not going to make them Mm -hmm. believe that they have a problem. And 
the thing that happens that gets a person to the point of believing that they have a problem or considering, even considering that they have a problem are going to be different for everyone. If you do that with them, for some people, they are going to maybe get to the contemplative stage that might walk and put them a little step closer to thinking about the fact that, well, maybe technically based on what you're saying, I might maybe have I have a problem, but I'm still not ready to do anything about it. Mm-hmm. But the good thing about that is when we work with people, no mm-hmm. matter what their problem is, mm-hmm. we know that they are somewhere on the continuum of a stage of change, whether mm-hmm. they're in the pre-contemplative stage, the contemplative stage where they're thinking about it, the action stage where they're like, okay, I'm about to do something about this, right? Um, or the maintenance phase where it's like, I've been working on it and now I'm sustaining health, right? I am in remission from whatever the problem was that mm-hmm. I wanted to change. But we also know that relapse, real possibility. Right. And that relapse... <laughs> Huge possibility. Okay. <laughs> that relapse can put you, and that's if you overeat. Mm-hmm. That's that chocolate cake that Shannon was talking about this year. <laughs> you better speak on it. You know, it was. You know, it will kick you backwards, and you might be right back at the contemplative stage again, eating chocolate cake, smoking, you know, whatever you're smoking, and thinking about <laughs> what you're going to do next to try to stop doing this. You could be right back at the contemplative stage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but The goal in treatment, whether you're a family member, whether you are a clinician, is to move people towards that maintenance phase, right, in their stage. Like if if I see someone and I work with them and and all I can do is get them from pre-contemplative to contemplative, I have to accept that that's a win Mm -hmm. because addiction is such a long journey. It's such a long journey oftentimes. And sometimes when you hear about, you know, addicts being in treatment, that it took seven to 10 times, you know, on average for them to like actually get clean. Honey, if it took two times to move you a little closer to maintenance, at least you're in the action phase. At least you're not mm-hmm. out here using, not thinking you got a problem. I mean, the, it is a, it is a process, you know, and mm. it's not linear. People we backslide. Mm. I love that you, I love what you're bringing up because I think one thing, you know, is that you sort of pointed out and what you were sharing is that that's their personal experience. And so don't take on the responsibility of their journey and acknowledge the little steps that they made that you contributed to, Mm -hmm. but whether they are sober, whether they relapse, whether they continue to use, that is not your responsibility to, to fix them. Nor is it your fault. Yeah. Or your fault. Yes. Family members usually take a lot of responsibility because some of the real reasons that people start using have to do a lot of times with childhood issues. And so parents find themselves holding onto a good deal of guilt Mm -hmm. about things that happened that maybe they ignored or just didn't even know happened or, you know, how could I have not seen this? Um, And and they start to feel like it's their fault. Mm -hmm. And this is why they're addicts. And this is why I need to do whatever I can do, even if what I'm doing is harming them. You know, if it makes them feel better sometimes, then I feel like I have to. And and I, I would really encourage those people to seek their own counseling mm. because there there is a certain amount of therapy that is needed to be able to manage our own stuff. Right. I agree. So that we can work with a person who is going through their own stuff. I and agree. The thing about addiction is people who are addicts have some very great skill sets. I call them skill sets because they are skill sets. They do now. Um, Now, these skill sets might not be all that positive to some of you all. 
but it helps them survive, you know? And so addicts have a great skill set of mistruths. Honey, they can lie like nobody's business. You understand me? Have everybody Um, to lie. I mean, they could crack a tear out like, you know, (laughs) hey, and their ability to manipulate people Mm -hmm. in situations Mm -hmm. is expert level. And so it's not to say that, you know, I think family members have to remember that in in the middle of this sickness, this person is like base level human functioning, like just on an animal level, they are surviving Mm. and they're going to do whatever they have to do to survive. And you might be getting played a little bit in the process of their survival. And you don't even know it, but you feel so guilty for you, the part that you played or or whatever happened that you just are willing to just be a victim of it in the midst of it. And that is where you need that outside clinical support to kind of help you forgive yourself so that you can help this person work on them. Mm, This is just... so powerful. I mean, even in, in, in your sharing, it kind of reminds me of my own personal journey and, and, and healing from that. You know what I mean? And then just the need to be able to detach, because I think what happens is codependent. A lot of people develop codependency mm-hmm. because they take on that responsibility. So I, I think you're speaking to so much and I certainly encourage I always encourage this like on every episode, not because I'm a therapist, but because therapy works if you work it. Yes, it does. And they say recovery works if you work it, but I <laughs> <laughs> gotta work the steps, as they Listen. say. <laughs> I'm so but it's true. I mean, I mean recovery, you have to work it the is. steps. I mean, and that's the thing is we're talking about addiction, but we're all recovering from something. Right. It's true. It is so and true. So, and so, you know, that, that old choice versus disease, it's like, well, let's just like all, you know, put our Bibles down real quick and mm. remember that we all recovered from something or are some in the point. midst of trying to recover, so, you know? And so I think we can lend some compassion regardless of what you're recovering from, whether it's a drug or an incident, um, it's not easy. Mm-mm, it's not easy. Oh, this was just so amazing. It really was. So, Are we done? No. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're done. But I feel like we, you know, have a little more to share. You know? No, I mean, it was really, it was really, really good. And I was really nervous about it. I was like, oh, my, you know, it, you know, transparently, substance abuse, addiction, that population, there were two populations that I really had a lot of reservations working mm-hmm. with when mm-hmm. I was in school for mm-hmm. this. Um, and it was, uh, victims of domestic violence mm-hmm. and, uh, working in addiction. Mm-hmm. Those were the two areas where I felt like I had the least amount of, um, compassion. Mm. But you seem so compassionate now. Well, you know, it took, well, I have family members who have been, you know, addicts at different points in their lives. Um, and some who recreationally used and, and never really became addicted, never needed treatment. Um, so, I, you know, I can I can definitely say from a personal perspective, it wasn't like it was totally foreign to me or like I was, you know, just like, oh, I don't understand those people. Um, <laughs> but I don't, I don't know what it, you know, for me personally, I think it was this, um, I was very bought into this idea of like, just get over it. 
Mm. Or just leave that domestic violence. And I feel like a lot of people think that way. I think a lot of people do think that way. And it took um, a lot of time for me to see it for the illness that it is, Mm -hmm. the illness that gets created through substance abuse. Mm -hmm. You know, first we start using substance, then we start abusing substance, Mm -hmm. and then we become dependent on substance. And I don't think that we pay enough attention to those phases because when we skip use and abuse and just go straight to like, okay, so, you know, working with addicts, it's like the use is a choice. And so we think the addiction is a choice, Mm. but they didn't just like go from choosing to choosing. Like they went from choosing to try something to having fun with something to abusing it overusing it whether it was prescribed to them or not mm-hmm. to now it's like they're physically dependent on it and now it's an illness there was a process that led to this becoming an illness mm. and we have to respect that process because we all know that there's a lot of things that we have started to do that we needed to stop doing whether right. it was being in relationship with people mm. having sex with you people speak on it. you know like i i think that and and so my awareness of nobody just comes to being in shitty situations <laughs> it's true staying in it, nobody you know? asked for that nobody <laughs> there asked. is a road that you travel to get there and you have to honor that road because a lot of times somewhere up in there is probably where the healing is right mm. um and so we can't we can't ignore it and just make it seem like you're just choosing this no we're now in a full blown illness mm. And we have to respect it as such, you know, and not try to minimize it because it's not the illness that we have. Yeah. Because, you know, we, we all are struggling with some small level of illness to some degree. I agree. I agree. This is just so powerful. I feel like I've learned so much that I can also um, incorporate in my own personal practice with some of my clients that are, are using or just some of the assessments that I do with clients that have uh, issues with addiction or even family members, because I do have some family members that continuously struggle with that. But this gives me a different lens. Like I love when you mentioned using to abusing to dependency and constantly remembering that. Cause I do think it's easy to forget that, but as a woman behind the desk today, what advice, you know, as a woman, as a clinician, as an educator, as the phenomenal being that you are, um, what advice would you give to other women or to some of our listeners, um, today as a woman behind the desk? I would just say, try, try, fight as hard as you can to figure out who you are. Mm. Mm. That's beautiful. To figure out who you are, if nobody else likes it, (laughs) if other people judge it, but just to figure out who you are. What brings you the most peace? What brings you the most calm? What makes you the most angry? What Mm. embarrasses you? What makes you feel accomplished? Like, figure out who you are without any input from anybody else, Mm. right? And then figure out who you want to be. And maybe you figure that out by 
looking at other people and seeing who you want them to be or who you think they are. Oftentimes that's just a projection of what we like to have for ourselves, but like find that person, right? That you're like, that's how I would want to be. Even if you don't personally know them, because a lot of what you're projecting onto them is, are the dreams that you have for yourself. Mm. Like find it and commit yourself to becoming it. Mm. Even if it takes a lifetime. Oh my God. I, I, oh my gosh. That makes me want to ask more questions. I feel well, like what? Just, <laughs> just, just that advice. I'm like, wow. Oh my gosh. I have so much more, but, and I'm sure I'm certain and, and positive. In fact, that some of our listeners will want to know more about you and really want to tap in and plug into everything about the Vedra Bay more blue because you literally are a force to be reckoned with and I don't mean that uh lightly seriously um so how can they find you uh to all of my listeners she does have a private practice so tap in (laughs) listen so I have a private practice um my practice is Southern Maryland Counseling and Coaching Mm -hmm. um we are located in Southern Maryland However, um, I'm actually in the middle of like a rebranding thing right now because we actually serve people well outside of Maryland. And so um, the name will be changing shortly. But for the near future, you will be able to find me at www.southernmarylandcounseling.com. If you want to request any type of services, um, we can be reached there. And then in addition to that, I do a live on Instagram on Tuesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern. So that is an option. You can always catch me there. We do fun topics. We Mm -hmm. do heart-to-heart topics. Um, We talk a little bit about behavioral health and current events. And so... Um, you get a little bit more of my personality and, and the nerddom. The nerddom <laughs> is so find... great though. It's such a strength though. <laughs> I feel, I, I love it. You can find me there. Um, the handle is at true blue journals. So that's me. <laughs> yes, that, that is you. That is her. I'll also put all of the information in the description. Um, so you all can find her and just get a little dose of uh, Devedra Bays More Blue. But until next time, you know what it is. You stay real, stay radiant, and stay revolutionary. And wherever you are in the world, I love you, girl. Bye.